Chapter Six, Part Two, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume One by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six: The First Winter, Part Two. On a clear, crisp day, with the full moon to show you the ridges and cracks and sastrugi, it was most pleasant to put on your ski and wander forth with no object but that of healthy pleasure. Perhaps you would make your way round the bluff end of the cape and strike southwards. Here you may visit Nelson working with his thermometers and current meters and other instruments over a circular hole in the ice, which he keeps open from day to day by breaking out the biscuit of newly formed ice. He has connected himself with the hut by telephone, and built round himself an igloo of drifted snow and the aforesaid biscuits, which effectually shelter him from the wind. Or you may meet Mears and Dimitri returning with the dog-teams from a visit to Hut Point. A little farther on the silence is complete, but now your ear catches the metallic scratch of ski-sticks on hard ice. There is someone else skiing over there. It may be many miles away, for sound travels in an amazing way. Every now and then there comes a sharp crack like a pistol-shot. It is the ice contracting in the glaciers of Erebus, and you know that it is getting colder. Your breath smokes, forming white rime over your face, and ice in your beard. If it is very cold, you may actually hear it crackle as it freezes in mid-air. These were the days which remained visibly in the mind as the most enjoyable during this first winter season. It was also novel, these much dreaded, and amongst us much derided, terrors of the long winter night. The atmosphere is very clear when it is not filled with snow or ice crystals, and the moonlight lay upon the land so that we could see the main outlines of the Hut Point Peninsula, and even Minna Bluff out on the barrier ninety miles away. The ice-cliffs of Erebus showed as great dark walls, but above them the blue ice of the glaciers gleamed silvery, and the steam flowed lazily from the crater carried away in a long line, showing us that the northerly breezes prevailed up there, and were storing up trouble in the south. Sometimes a shooting star would seem to fall right into the mountain, and for the most part the aurora flitted uneasily about in the sky. The importance of plenty of outdoor exercise was generally recognised, and our experience showed us that the happiest and healthiest members of our party during this first year were those who spent the longest period in the fresh air. As a rule, we walked and worked and skied alone, not, I feel sure, because of any individual distaste for the company of our fellows, but rather because of a general inclination to spend a short period of the day without company. At least this is certainly true of the officers. I am not so sure about the men. Under the circumstances, the only time in the year that a man could be alone was in his walks abroad from winter quarters, for the hut, of course, was always occupied, and when sledging this sardine-like existence was continuous night and day. There was one regular exception to this rule. Every possible evening, that is to say if it was not blowing a full blizzard, Wilson and Bowers went up the ramp together to read Bertram. Now this phrase will convey little meaning without some explanation. I have already spoken of the ramp as the steep, rubbly slope, partly covered by snow and partly by ice, which divided the cape on which we lived from the glaciated slopes of Erebus. After a breathless scramble up this embankment, one came upon a belt of rough boulder-strewn ground, from which arose at intervals conical mounds, the origin of which puzzled us for many months. At length, by the obvious means of cutting a section through one of them, it was proved that there was a solid kenite lava block in the centre of this cone, 
proving that the hole was formed by the weathering of a single rock. Threading your way for some hundreds of yards through this terrain, a scramble attended by many slips and falls on a dark night, you reach the first signs of glaciation. A little farther, isolated in the ice stream, is another group of debris cones, and on the largest of these we placed meteorological screen B, commonly called Bertram. This screen, together with A, Algernon, and C, Clarence, which were in north and south bays respectively, were erected by Bowers, who thought, rightly, that they would form an object to which men could guide their walks, and that at the same time the observations of maximum, minimum, and present temperatures would be a useful check to the meteorologist when he came to compare them with those taken at the hut. As a matter of fact, the book in which we used to enter these observations shows that the air temperatures out on the sea ice vary considerably from those on the Cape, and that the temperatures several hundred feet up on the slopes of Erebus are often several degrees higher than those taken at sea level. I believe that much of the weather in this part of the world is an intensely local affair, and these screens produced useful data. Wilson and Bowers would go up the ramp when it was blowing and drifting fairly hard, so that although the rocks and landmarks immediately round them were visible, all beyond was blotted out. It is quite possible to walk thus among landmarks which you know at a time when it is most unwise to go out on to the sea-ice, where there are no fixed points to act as a guide. It was Wilson's pleasant conceit to keep his balaclava rolled up so that his face was bare, on such occasions being somewhat proud of the fact that he had not, as yet, been frostbitten. Imagine our joy when he entered the hut one cold windy evening with two white spots on his cheeks, which he vainly tried to hide behind his dogskin mitts. The pony's lunch came at midday, when they were given snow to drink and compressed fodder with oats or oil cake on alternate days to eat the proportion of which was arranged according to the work they were able to do in the present, or expected to do in the future. Our own lunch was soon after one, and a few minutes before that time Hooper's voice would be heard, "'Table, please, Mr. Debenham,' and all writing materials, charts, instruments, and books, would have to be removed. On Sunday this table displayed a dark blue cloth, but for meals, and at all other times, it was covered with white oilcloth." Lunch itself was a pleasant, meatless meal, consisting of limited bread and butter with plenty of jam or cheese, tea or cocoa, the latter being undoubtedly a most useful drink in a cold country. Many controversies raged over the rival merits of tea and cocoa. Some of us made for ourselves buttered toast at the galley fire. I must myself confess to a weakness for Welsh rarebit, and the others followed my example on cheese days in making messes of which we were not a little proud. Scott sat at the head of the table, that is, at the east end, but otherwise we all took our places haphazard from meal to meal, as our conversation, or want of it, merited, or as our arrival found a vacant chair. Thus, if you felt talkative, you might always find a listener in Debenham. If inclined to listen yourself, it was only necessary to sit near Taylor or Nelson. If, on the other hand, you just wanted to be quiet, Atkinson or Oates would, probably, give you a congenial atmosphere." There was never any want of conversation, largely due to the fact that no conversation was expected. We most of us know the horrible blankness which comes over our minds when we realise that because we are eating we are also supposed to talk, whether we have anything to say or not. It was also due to the more primitive reason that in a company of specialists, whose travels extended over most parts of the earth, and whose subjects overlapped and interlocked at so many points, topics of conversation were not only numerous, 
but full of possibilities of expansion. Add to this that, from the nature of our work, we were probably people of an inquisitive turn of mind, and wanted to get to the bottom of the subjects which presented themselves, and you may expect to find, as was in fact the case, an atmosphere of pleasant and quite interesting conversation, which sometimes degenerated into heated and noisy argument. The business of eating over, Pipes will it without further formality. I mention Pipes only because, while we had a most bountiful supply of tobacco, the kindly present of Mr. Wills, our supply of cigarettes from the same source was purposely limited, and only a small quantity were landed, allowing a ration to such members who wished. Consequently, cigarettes were an article of some value, and in a land where the ordinary forms of currency are valueless, they became a frequent stake to venture when making bets. Indeed, I bet you ten cigarettes, or I bet you a dinner when we get back to London, became the most frequent bids of the argumentative gambler, occasionally varied, when the bettor was more than usually certain of the issue, by the offer of a pair of socks. By two o'clock we were dispersed once more to our various works and duties. If it was bearable outside, the hut would soon be empty, save for the cook and a couple of seamen washing up the plates. Otherwise every one went out to make the most of any glimmering of daylight which still came to us from the sun below the northern horizon. And here it may be explained that whereas in England the sun rises more or less in the east, is due south at midday, and sets in the west, this is not the case in the Antarctic regions. In the latitude in which we now lived, the sun is at his highest at midday in the north, at his lowest at midnight in the south. As is generally known, he remains entirely above the horizon for four months of the summer, October to February, and entirely below the horizon for four months in the winter, April 21st to August 21st. About February 27th, the end of summer, he begins to set and rise due south at midnight. The next day he sets a little earlier, and dips a little deeper. During March and April he is going deeper and deeper every day, until by the middle of April he is set all the time except for just a peep over the northern horizon at midday, which is his last farewell before he goes away. The reverse process takes place from August 21st onwards. On this date the sun just peeped above the sea to the north of our hut. The next day he rose a little higher and longer, and in a few weeks he was rising well in the east and sinking behind the western mountains. But he did not stop there. Soon he was rising in the southeast, until in the latter days of September he never rose, for he never set, but circled around us by day and night. On midsummer day, December 21st, at the South Pole, the sun circles round for twenty-four hours without changing his altitude for one minute of a degree, but elsewhere he is always rising in the sky until midday in the north, and falling from that time until midnight in the south. Often, far too often, it was blizzing, and it was impossible to go out except into the camp to take the observations, to care for the dogs, to get ice for water, or to bring in stores. Even a short excursion of a few yards had to be made with great care under such circumstances, and certainly no one went outside more than was necessary, if only because one was obliged to dig the accumulated drift from the door before it was possible to proceed. Blizzard or no blizzard, most men were back in the hut soon after four, and from then until six-thirty worked steadily at their jobs. As supper-time approached, some kindly disposed person would sit down and play on the broadwood pianola, which was one of our blessings, and so it was that we came to supper with good tempers as well as keen appetites. Soup, in which the flavour of tomatoes occurred all too frequently, followed by seal or penguin, 
and twice weekly by New Zealand mutton, with tinned vegetables, formed the basis of our meal, and this was followed by a pudding. We drank lime-juice and water which sometimes included a suspicious penguin flavour, derived from the ice slopes from which our water was quarried. During our passage out to New Zealand, in the ship, or as Mears always insisted on calling her, the steamer, it was our pleasant custom to have a glass of port or a liqueur after dinner. Alas, we had this no longer. After leaving New Zealand, space allowed of little wine being carried in the Terra Nova, even if the general medical opinion of the expedition had not considered its presence undesirable. We had, however, a few cases for special festivals, as well as some excellent liqueur brandy, which was carried as medical comforts on our sledge journeys. Any officer who allowed the distribution of this luxury on nearing the end of a journey became extremely popular. Lack of wine probably led to the suspension of a custom which had prevailed on the Terra Nova, namely the drinking of the old toast of Saturday night. Sweethearts and wives, may our sweethearts become our wives, and our wives remain our sweethearts. And that more appropriate, in our case, toast of Sunday, namely, absent friends. We had but few married officers, though I must say most survivors of the expedition hurried to remedy this single state of affairs when they returned to civilization. Only two of them are unmarried now. Most of them will probably make a success of it, for the good Arctic explorer has most of the defects and qualities of a good husband. On the top of the pianola, close to the head of the table, lived the gramophone, and under the one looking-glass we possessed, which hung on the bulkhead of Scott's cubicle, was a homemade box with shelves on which lay our records. It was usual to start the gramophone after dinner, and its value may be imagined. It is necessary to be cut off from civilization and all that it means to enable you to realize fully the power music has to recall the past, or the depths of meaning in it to soothe the present, and give hope for the future. We had also records of good classical music, and the kindly disposed individual who played them had his reward in the pleasant atmosphere of homeliness which made itself felt. After dinner had been cleared away, some men sat on at the table, occupied with books and games. Others dispersed to various jobs. In the matter of games it was noticeable that one would have its vogue and yield place to another, without any apparent reason. For a few weeks it might be chess which would then yield its place to draughts and backgammon, and again come into favour. It is a remarkable fact that, though we had playing cards with us, none of our company appeared desirous to use them. In fact, I cannot remember seeing a game of cards played except in the ship on the voyage from England. With regard to books, we were moderately well provided with good modern fiction, and very well provided with such authors as Thackeray, Charlotte Bronte, Bulwer-Lytton, and Dickens. With all respect to the kind givers of these books, I would suggest that the literature most acceptable to us in the circumstances under which we did most of our reading, that is, in winter quarters, was the best of the more recent novels, such as Barry, Kipling, Merriman, and Maurice Hewlett. We certainly should have taken with us as much as Shaw, Barker, Ibsen, and Wells as we could lay our hands on, for the train of ideas started by these works, and the discussions to which they would have given rise, would have been a godsend to us in our isolated circumstances. The one type of book in which we were rich was Arctic and Antarctic travel. We had a library of these, given to us by Sir Lewis Beaumont and Sir Albert Markham, which was very complete. They were extremely popular, though it is probably true that these are books which you want rather to read on your return than when you are actually experiencing a similar life. They were used extensively in discussions or lectures on such polar subjects as clothing, food, rations, and the building of igloos, 
while we were constantly referring to them on specific points and getting useful hints, such as the use of an inner lining to our tents and the mechanism of a blubber stove. I have already spoken of the importance of maps and books of reference, and these should include a good encyclopaedia and dictionaries, English, Latin and Greek. Oates was generally deep in Napier's history of the Peninsular War, and some of us found Herbert Paul's History of Modern England a great standby. Most of us managed to find room in our personal gear when sledging for some book, which did not weigh much, and yet would last. Scott took some browning on the polar journey, though I only saw him reading it once. Wilson took Maud and In Memoriam. Bowers always had so many weights to tally and observations to record on reaching camp that I feel sure he took no reading matter. Bleak House was the most successful book I ever took away on sledging, though a volume of poetry was useful because it gave one something to learn by heart and repeat during the blank hours of the daily march, when the idle mind is all too apt to think of food in times of hunger, or possibly of purely imaginary grievances, which may become distorted into real foundations of discord under the abnormal strain of living for months in the unrelieved company of three other men. If your companions have much the same tastes as yourself, it is best to pool your allowance of weights and take one book which will offer a wide field of thought and discussion. I have heard Scott and Wilson bless the thought which led them to take Darwin's Origin of Species on their first southern journey. Such is the object of your sledging book. But you often want the book which you read for half an hour before you go to sleep at winter quarters to take you into the frivolous fripperies of modern social life, which you may not know and may never wish to know, but which it is often pleasant to read about, and never so much so as when its charms are so remote as to be entirely tantalising. Scott, who always amazed me by the amount of work he got through without any apparent effort, was essentially the driving force of the expedition. In the hut quietly organising, working out masses of figures, taking the greatest interest in the scientific work of the station, and perhaps turning out, quite by the way, an elaborate paper on an abstruse problem in the neighbourhood, fond of his pipe and a good book. Browning, Hardy, Tess was one of his favourites, Goldsworthy, Barry was one of his greatest friends. He was eager to accept suggestions if they were workable, and always keen to sift even the most unlikely theories, if by any means they could be shaped to the desired end, a quick and modern brain which he applied with thoroughness to any question of practice or theory. Essentially an attractive personality, with strong likes and dislikes, he excelled in making his followers his friends, by a few words of sympathy or praise. I have never known anybody, man or woman, who could be so attractive when he chose. Sledging he went harder than any man of whom I have ever heard. Men never realised Scott until they had gone sledging with him. On our way up the Beardmore Glacier we were going at top pressure, some seventeen hours out of the twenty-four, and when we turned out in the morning we felt as though we had only just turned in. By lunchtime we felt that it was impossible to get through in the afternoon a similar amount of work to that which we had done in the morning. A cup of tea and two biscuits work wonders, and the first two hours of the afternoon's march went pretty well. Indeed they were the best hours marching of the day, but by the time we had been going some four and a half or five hours, we were watching Scott for that glance to right and left which betokened the search for a good camping site. Spell O, Scott would cry, and then, How's the enemy, Titus? to Oates, who would hopefully reply that it was, say, seven o'clock. Oh, well, I think we'll go on a little bit more, Scott would say. Come along. It might be an hour or more before we halted and made our camp. Sometimes a blizzard had its silver lining. Scott could not wait. 
however welcome a blizzard could be to tired bodies i speak only of summer sledging to scott himself any delay was intolerable and it is hard to realise how difficult waiting may be to one in a responsible position it was our simple job to follow to get up when we were roused to pull our hardest to do our special work as thoroughly and quickly as possible it was scott who had to organise distances and weights and food as well as do the same physical work as ourselves in sledging responsibility and physical work are combined to an extent seldom if ever found elsewhere he was a subtle character full of lights and shades england knows scott as a hero she has little idea of him as a man he was certainly the most dominating character in our not uninteresting community indeed there is no doubt that he would carry weight in any gathering of human beings but few who knew him realised how shy and reserved the man was and it was partly for this reason that he so often laid himself open to misunderstanding add to this that he was sensitive femininely sensitive to a degree which might be considered a fault and it will be clear that leadership to such a man may be almost a martyrdom and that the confidence so necessary between leader and followers which must of necessity be based upon mutual knowledge and trust becomes in itself more difficult it wanted an understanding man to appreciate scott quickly to others knowledge came with experience he was not a very strong man physically and was in his youth a weakly child at one time not expected to live but he was well proportioned with broad shoulders and a good chest a stronger man than wilson weaker than bowers or seaman evans he suffered from indigestion and told me at the top of the beardmore that he never expected to go on during the first stage of the ascent temperamentally he was a weak man and might very easily have been an irritable autocrat as it was he had moods and depressions which might last for weeks and of these there is ample evidence in his diary the man with the nerves gets things done but sometimes he has a terrible time in doing them he cried more easily than any man i have ever known what pulled scott through was character sheer good grain which ran over and under and through his weaker self and clamped it together it would be stupid to say he had all the virtues he had for instance little sense of humour and he was a bad judge of men but you have only to read one page of what he wrote towards the end to see something of his sense of justice for him justice was god indeed i think you must read all those pages and if you have read them once you will probably read them again you will not need much imagination to see what manner of man he was and notwithstanding the immense fits of depression which attacked him scott was the strongest combination of a strong mind in a strong body that i have ever known and this because he was so weak naturally so peevish highly strong irritable depressed and moody practically such a conquest of himself such vitality such push and determination and withal in himself such a personal and magnetic charm he was naturally an idle man he had told us so he had been a poor man he had had a horror of leaving those dependent upon him in difficulties you may read it over and over again in his last letters and messages he will go down to history as the englishman who conquered the south pole and who died as fine a death as any man has had the honour to die his triumphs are many but the pole was not by any means the greatest of them surely the greatest was that by which he conquered his weaker self and became the strong leader whom we went to follow and came to love. End of chapter 6, part 2